Welcome back to Escaping Gilead. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And we're going to cover the ninth episode of the fourth season. This one was called Progress. We are going to be short and sweet in this episode because we have been working, I would say, triple time on your finale episode. We had a great opportunity to speak with Bruce Miller. He shed so much light on not only the finale, but also the season. So this one is going to be just... Succinct. Yes. (laughs) Let's do it, Paul. All right, I'm going to I'm going to I'm I'm going to kick off with what I feel like is the pivotal scene in this whole episode, which is the moment when Luke comes to June and asks her to go to Nick for help. This is after things didn't work out with Joseph, Commander Lawrence, if you're nasty. Um <laughs> Etc. Etc. That moment with Luke in their living room, they're sitting on opposing sides and he has a range of things going on in both his face, his tone of voice, the words that he says. And it is not easy for a guy like me who in person has trouble getting subtext and emotion and true intention often, just even with the plain words people say to me. So I needed to watch this two, three, four times before I started to develop a a sense of what I thought Luke was after. The actor OT did an amazing job, I thought, in expressing this complicated range of emotions. You could tell after what seemed to be like an all-night truth-telling session with June, he was just fraught. Everything that he was listening to between Joseph and her brought us to this moment of just being like, we have to ask Nick. Like, if he has the ability to do something, we have to ask. And that moment, Paul, when June says, you want me to go meet with Nick? That laugh that Luke gives, that like, no, I don't want you to meet with Nick. (laughs) It was like, holy crap. I mean, there were like all these glimpses of like serial killer and like man pushed to the edge and like, I just want my family back. Like nobody wants this situation, but at the same time, we're forced to be in it and I have to deal with this man and I'm just going to explode. But also I have to keep it together because I have Nicole and we have Hannah and ah, I mean, you could just see like if his skin could just like bubble, like if it was that show, right? <laughs> like some sci-fi show, his skin would be blistering. I just feel like he's just tea kettle ready to sound off. Well, building up to this moment, we've had, like you said, the all night chat. We've had the him sharing his years of fruitless labors, trying to go through diplomatic channels and back channels, trying to get information on Hannah, quote unquote, the official ways. Which was really good, Paul. I'm really glad that they bothered to do that because we had spoken about how without showing that to the viewers, there was a lot of like kind of almost mistrust with Luke. Like, have you really been doing anything? You know, have you just been sitting here in Canada this whole time? So to see all those papers and files laid out and all the explanations, it was like, Okay, no, he's been busy and trying. And then you get the fruitless call with Commander Lawrence. And I think that's what gets him to this point 
where he kept his shit together after learning the full truth. Right, which we do have to take a moment. We do we have, have to take a moment. Three different listeners who, if you guys are still listening, um, we want to address that you feel like we were being too hard on June by calling her it a lie of what she said about Hannah. I feel like Luke's shock and awe face where we start this episode should give some credence to the idea that June really had misled him enough. Whether or not using the word lake house was applying to the right house, whether or not it was just out of sequence, the main thing we were all trying to say is that by not being completely honest, and she had a great reason, she wanted to spare his feelings, but by not being completely honest, she was putting their relationship in that much more jeopardy of him listening to her, of him having more compassion, we brought up the testimony part, but by the end of this episode, it doesn't even matter <laughs> the testimony part. So if we could all agree to just let that part go, I think that the idea that both the com the conversation between her and Janine and Caleb and her not being truthful about that and her conversation with Luke, both all coming from the same place, not wanting to hurt this other person, not being entirely truthful. We will not say she lied, but it wasn't a clear picture of what was going on that that is leading to more frayed tensions in these relationships. And I think you add that up and you get this guy that, in my opinion, now, this may not be correct and you may have a different take. Okay, I'll let you know if I do. I would bet my life on that. I think he is in sort of a damage control mode and to an extent, he knows the risk of sending, he obviously knows the risk of sending June and baby Nicole to deal with a figure of some import from another country that you're not exactly on good terms with. Um, hello, previous kidnappers. Exactly. What are you talking about? You're going to go talk with the country who kidnapped you. But he's willing to do that for the idea of getting Hannah or at least information about Hannah. And to me, it's sort of an all or nothing game now. He realizes that that none of the shit that he tried was ever going to go anywhere. Thanks to the, I think the conversation with, with the commander Lawrence was part of that. Yeah. How it was just like dead end. Yeah. Or kind of the childish tit for tat. We'll trade other lives for this one life. If you're willing to play that game kind of thing. Well, let's, can we just pause right there? Because that is a conversation that we had previous, this whole idea of, do you look out for yourself or are you fighting for the group? We talked about this in the support group. Do you heal yourself or do you fight for the cause? You know, what do you do? Can you still heal and also fight for the cause? And that's like, this part is like, would you trade all these other kids for your own kid? To be honest with you, I was frozen in that moment. If somebody said, we have to trade five kids who are desperately unhappy and have grown up for their entire lives with this other group of parents, but I know this society is completely fucked up and you can have your child back who I know doesn't recognize me and is going to come back and have no idea what's going on. My mind can't even compute that. Like, I'm not even going to pretend like I can answer that. It's an algebraic equation that I don't know the answer to. I don't know how you do it because it feels like it's a lose-lose situation for everybody, no matter what you choose. There doesn't seem like a win in any of it. No, 
But I think if you let, let Luke stew like he did, because there was some time that spent, yeah, uh, there, was, there was some time that passed there. You could tell like the sun was coming through when they were talking to Lawrence at a certain angle. But then when they talked again in the afternoon, it was it was dark outside. So he'd had a minute to have this rattle around in his brain. And by that time, this is me. I think he is he, he's willing he, he's willing to make a trade. And that trade is I'll take Hannah for June and Nicole. For June and Nicole? That's the mindset that I thought he was at right then. Wow. I'm I'm willing to dangle you two out there for the sake of Hannah. See, again, I feel like this this is very difficult for me to understand. I think that that part when he said, Do you think Nick will do something like this for you? And she said, Nick would do anything for me. I was like, Girl, you are pushing buttons. Like, you can think that in your heart, but I don't know if you can say that like that to your man. Like, ooh, I don't know, girl. I don't know exactly what Luke wanted except to say, I think he could see that there was no way that June, Hannah, and Luke were ever going to be okay without the three of them being in the same place at the same time. And whatever amount of chess pieces had to get moved even if I, I mean what you're kind of implying even if that meant June has to go back in Gilead in some way and he has to lose her for a while and then play this chess game to get them both back I don't even know it does feel like a complicated and very risky move because not only do you have Gilead but Watching June drive away with the baby and that smile on her face and her excitement to see Nick, you could not just lose her to Gilead, you could lose her to Nick. But the question mark is, is she already lost to Nick? There's a duality that we haven't addressed so much in the podcast that we should start addressing, which is the idea of Offred and June inhabiting the same body. And Luke didn't know that until which is fair though right i mean i think that there's a part where you think you're getting june back and damage to june back right that is your duality yeah a healthy june who's still in there somewhere and a damaged june and the reality is you're getting a damaged june back and offered has grown into her own personality who has their own agenda and their own feelings on things and how they would handle a situation that means that healthy June currently isn't available. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't get to control body, thoughts, feelings. And that's the part that Luke was hoping was coming back somehow. And she's on uh, furlough <laughs> for, yeah. for a while. And Alfred is is who he's sending to Nick. And, and Alfred's fine with that. I almost think that you saw a sign of relief when she could be off-red, you know, when she was driving in the car and she kind of let that personality, she's wearing the red coat, she's in the off-red state of mind, going to go see her guy. You could almost see the relief of not having to be sort of healing June right then. Like she could just be strong, badass, in love with a passionate relationship with Nick off-red. That suited her just fine. What did you think about the interaction between Nick and June in what we have is appears to be a religious school, a Catholic school? That's my guess. And I mean, there was a lot of little peppering of more religious symbolism in this episode, more than even 
other episodes. We kind of sprinkled that back in harder. I kind of wondered where this was in relation to, you know, the border. Because, you know, like parts of Maine are very, you know, not well regulated, but still close to Canada. But yeah, still, I think we're in, you know, I think we're like at the border of, I think, of like more like New York kind of yeah. area. But the question Driving mark, distance. there's definitely this section of land that I think they well established in this, that regardless of whether we're calling it Gilead or Canada or whatever, there's clearly a territory here that is not being monitored. And that is something that is important for us to kind of take note. We kept trying to go back and forth and say, well, but but is Nick still safely in Gilead and June's the one taking the risk? Or did Nick cross the border and June is in a safe Canadian place? What are we looking at? And I, the, the answer is, I think, unclear. Like we're in some muddled section that is either disputed and or just this kind of buffer zone or something. I, I don't even want to give like a clear answer of what we think it is. It's just unmonitored land. I have to say there was far more passion in the reuniting of Nick and June than I saw on the boat with Luke and June. I felt like there was so much more spark and so much more feeling like a real alive relationship versus what I see with Luke and June, which feels so much more like a two people mourning the loss of a relationship. Now, of course, we have two different scenarios. She has a healthy, happy, very sweet little baby on her lap. Over here with Luke and June, we have the absence of Hannah. And so there's, you know, we have these moments where they so perfectly put them together, you know, uh, whether it be opposing sides of Luke and June staring at each other versus the very tight little circle they made with Nick and June and the baby between them, like a perfect little family. That's a good point. In Canada, she's almost Aunt June to the same baby where you go across the border and she's mom to this man with this man who's dad. Yeah. And you're right. They are more dynamic. Sparks are flying with, with Luke. You're getting a man who is getting out of an, uh, walking on eggshells phase to figuring out, I might not actually like this person after all this. And she's having to maintain this kind of June Osborne, you know, persona that they are starting to expect of her. It does seem to be a complicated process for June right now because she doesn't seem to be able to access healthy in a relationship with Luke June, whereas she can access Alfred. She can access the woman that was with Nick. It's like healthy June with Luke and Hannah is out of reach. And you can kind of feel that like because there's always space between her and Luke, you know, but with Nick, they were quickly like tangled up in a little ball together you know like and she can access all the feelings and all the same uh vibes with him still but with she can luke, joke with him yeah she can joke with she him can't joke with luke she hasn't joked with luke it's very all, good call it's been totally serious interactions super super important so i don't know what this means we have this moment where, you know, she is leaving and, and you know, he slides back on that wedding ring, which I was like, Woo! I mean, mini reveal, like, look at this little business that just happened. I mean, so clearly when people say, well, why doesn't Nick just leave Gilead? I think we just saw a gold ring reason why he obviously has dependents now back in Gilead that aren't going to make it so easy to untether. Why can't he just get in the car with June, say to the agents that are following her, I request asylum and walk away. 
Which makes you wonder, because he's been married before and it wasn't... It was Eden, yeah. ...what he wanted. So is it something like that? I think he's turned into a very protective person, from what I can tell. And so... I mean, he was protective with Eden. He didn't want to have sex with Eden. He didn't want, she was too young. She was, it was all freaking him out, you know? Yeah. And so it wasn't coming from a place of like, I don't want to be married. It was coming from a place of like, I don't want to be that guy. So whomever belongs to the other side of that ring feels like, I think he still has an obligation in his head, at least, if not his heart, I don't know, to still take care of that other person. There's a lot of complicating, it feels very polygamist, like there's a lot of hearts and heads and kids and like webs that are all being yanked right now. I don't know that anyone is in the right or the wrong. June and Nick's romance and love for one another is completely outside of of Luke and June. And so there's this whole like, nobody's right, nobody's wrong here. That feels so confusing well, and for their love to exist, it has to exist in a place where no one would want to be. Yes. You know, physically, you know. What a mess. <laughs> <laughs> right. What a mess. What a mess. So that situation, it was eye-opening to see how comfortably June fell back in with Nick. And you're right, because it does imply this, like, she does have this level of wanting to be in that world, but not that world. Don't get me wrong, she doesn't want to go to Gilead, but there is this like dangerous, strange purgatory, you know, that where Nick kind of exists in this no man's land, kind of feel that she kind of can still access that love with him. Mm-hmm. And everywhere else is poison. True Gilead's poison, life with Luke is poison, but this strange little bubble with Nick and Nicole, she can still kind of exist and be happy and joke. Like you said, joke. That is such a huge thing. So that final scene with them, with Tuello and the big reveal of Fred's deal. Wow, you guys. There was an audio cue before she starts freaking out that meant a lot to me. I have high blood pressure. And if you've ever heard someone with high blood pressure describe blood rushing in their ears, it literally sounds like there's a stream in your head. And you look for it until you get used to the idea, that's in my head. That's not happening around me. (laughs) Right. Um, When she loses her shit and chases him out the window or not the the door, that was what it sounds like. That, 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 That sound that I could feel like she was just seeing red at that moment and could not contain herself anymore. When it was basically, you know, the curtain was pulled back on this idea and her realization that that testimony meant nothing to Tuello and to the people in the room, except for to be used as a tool to flip Fred and to be used like that in a place where she's meant to feel safe and secure and protected and her rights looked after and to feel like someone just took your story and tossed it out, you know, in, in lieu of a bigger fish, you know, just the betrayal and the anger. I mean, again, back to Elizabeth Moss and her, you know, just raw performance. I've never said I'll kill you to somebody quite like that. It's not quite like that. Not quite like that. No. But it was like, wow. I mean, 
I could feel it in my soul and, and everything we talked about, about how, you know, this testimony feels questionable. This testimony feels like it doesn't feel like we're going to get what we want out of this. And I was coming at it and you were coming at it more from like, I don't know if Tuello is going to totally believe because I think of this other story and, and maybe this is going to get untangled because Fred and Serena all of a sudden have this whole like defense story and everything. But something about it didn't feel like we were going to trial. You know, there was a lot of conversation between us about like, this doesn't feel like we're going to have that satisfactory moment in a courtroom, you know, so what the heck is going to happen, you know, but that moment of betrayal, oh my God, and Tuello, his demeanor, that kind of like, not mean, but also didn't care enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he wasn't. He was involved enough to know when the right time was to share this. He did, but do you know what I mean, though? Like, he didn't say, I'm so sorry, June. Like, there was no emotion on his side. He was so businesslike. I've seen someone else describe him as, like, an HR rep, and Uh, that really kind of gets it, you know, just because he does seem, for for as powerful as... He was originally kind of set up to be because he was the point of contact for the Well, and hello, he's got phone numbers direct to Nick and Joseph and everybody. He could just call anybody. It's starting to feel like middle management, you know? Yes. Doesn't actually get to make his own call on on things, you know? He claims. I I don't know. I don't know how much he blames my boss that I had to do it and how much that he is moving around. The other thing that I felt like I had to be reminded of is that you know, this Gilead situation has been going on a long time and he has heard a lot of stories and he is dealing with a lot of bad people. And I feel like there's a sense of just being desensitized. And he's like, yeah, I know they rape women. Like you're not going to get him to shed a tear, you know, Mm -hmm. as much as we're wanting him to, he has been, I'm sure eating and breathing Gilead insanity for however many years they've been going on with this. We think it's seven for June, but we think it could be much longer for that. So there, there's just like, what in the hell? Tuello is just, it feels like he's got like this armor on where he's just not moved by June's screams. Yeah, that's and a good Luke perspective. And Luke is freaked out. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, if you could think, think of how Tuello got to where he is, he survived a coup and managed to maintain a position within a government that was shattered and was still kind of a hard ass enough to do that. You know, like your, your local meter maid didn't do that. Yeah. You know, th- but this guy did. We do have to throw out that while we could draw a straight line to say, okay, Tuello coerced uh, June, made it seem like she was helping and put this testimony forward. And then that scared Fred and whatever. And that made him flip. That is one straight line that you could draw, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Putnams coming to visit. Now, I think myself, I think getting the fuck off from Commander Putnam, that's what flipped Fred. I think that flipped Fred. I think that, and I think the uh, the baby is property of the state Yeah, and is going to go live with Naomi and they have a room they're getting all set up and whatever. <gasps> I mean, if you're the Waterfords, for as much as from June's POV, it could only be being used for her testimony and that's what happened. But I think that the Putnam's coming is really, I mean, that really put the gigantic nail in the coffin that what choice do they have? Okay, we have to speak of the line, you're in our thoughts and prayers. (laughs) Oh boy. Wow. And how many times we've not only heard that as a euphemism for we're not going to do anything, you know, nothing's going to change. And also that whole idea of, well, we can't negotiate 
because that's just going to lead to more kidnappings of commanders and kids. So we can't negotiate, you know, then then the bad guys win. We've heard this a billion, billion times. Right. So it's all applicable to the situation. We can understand it. But at the same time, it's like, oh, my God, did you really think anyone was going to try to get Fred Waterford back? Or is life just so disposable there that who cares about Fred Waterford? Let him die from the Gilead commander point of view. I mean, to an extent, uh don't they seem to have a million commanders? I mean, as much as they speak about having more kids, lives don't seem to matter. They kill people on the rigs. Like, yeah, Winslow died, and that was like a one episode problem. <laughs> but like, a, I'm just saying, like a beating heart, no matter who you are, doesn't seem to matter. It just seems to matter if you have more babies. You know what I mean? Mm. Which is a weird. That's a weird mix. But so yeah, Putnam's, my God, I almost like fell off my chair when I almost like, oh, of course he's still yours, but I would just take care of him until this whole mess is over. I was like, ooh, and Naomi's eye spying the notepad that Serena's been writing on, like, oh, we've just been doing some little bit of literacy here. We know what we think about literacy. Right. <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. Personally, I think it was the Putnam visit. And, I think it was the, the Putnam's the, too. The mental math. Because when they were having that talk in the chapel, they weren't saying, and all that stuff June said was bad too. You know, it was- It was the Putnam's, a thousand percent. Yeah. You want to flip over to the Red Center? Yes. This was those nice callbacks that this show does, where it reframes scenes that you've seen maybe before that replace one character with another. Like we've been mentioning a couple episodes ago, the idea of June and Lydia having been in the same position separated by years, but you know, June running the circle with the aunt in the, in the library and Lydia ran that same circle with the handmaids in the red center all those years ago. And now we have Janine being promoted to June, I guess at the red center. I think so. Yeah. And and Esther being the new Janine. There are callbacks to things that we've seen before, like the room with the shackles in the basement, the idea of Janine helping Esther eat. Oh, God, what a crazy twist on that, though, because that was making me think back to the farm of Esther being in charge and screaming at Janine to eat when they yes. slaughtered Mr. Darcy the pig. Exactly. And so then for Janine to turn around and give her, you know, the tray and say, you need to eat and just get like and first talk nice, but then get angry and be like, just you guys got to do it. I mean. God, so that whole thing starts off with that like Last Supper scene with Aunt Lydia sitting in that Jesus position and having compassion for Janine, allowing her to leave the room when they're speaking of these like horrible punishments for Esther. I worried about the compassion she was showing for Janine if that was going to put a target on her back because truly the other ants are not having this. And it gives a weird credence to Aunt, was it Irene from the previous episode? where she was saying, that's what they taught us to do. Think of the casual nature in which these ants are just sitting around, eating their dry chicken, talking about tearing out someone's tongue. And, and it's not like, well, you know, things have come to their worst spot, so we have to take the last resort. They're not saying that. They're just saying it like a matter of course, you know, like bring me some sweet tea and let's cut out her tongue. 
I am super excited about this path that we have going on with Janine. I think that they have set the table very well with that mushroom talk of you can't sit me in the corner in the dark and put shit on me and, and not talk to me and expect me to grow and live and have this life. She is stepping up. This All this talk of, of don't underestimate Janine this entire season is coming to roost right now. I think she is being silent and meek like a fox here. Like she understands what she's doing. She is making herself useful. She is showing that she has worth within this sort of ant community and being able to usher along handmaids without punishment, that there can be a different way. This is the same tact she took with June when we were back with Steven and the BJs. And, you know, she came to June and she spoke quietly to June and said, you know, if you talk to Steven a little more nicely, you know, he might let you go on this trip and all that stuff. And then going to Steven and saying, you know, we wouldn't be this far if it wasn't for June. She brokered that whole situation just as she did between Lydia and Esther. She went to both parties. She made them see, the, see that perhaps we could talk this out a little bit and it could work out in everyone's advantage here. You don't get hurt. You get what you want out of a handmaid. She's compliant. She is being that diplomat that June once was. Well, and she now understands where she's at and who she has in her corner, which is herself. That's uh, exhibited in the, in the moment when she says, June's not here to Esther because she wants to go on and on about June and this and that. And Janine cuts it off. And I don't know if that's how Janine feels in her heart or that's how she's, she's trying to strengthen this other girl that she doesn't want to see harm come to. But either way, that might be a fake it till you make it and it doesn't matter kind of situation. She knows there is no June. Forget June. There's a me. I loved that the focus though was on you have to stay alive for when things get better. This isn't about following on someone else's coattails. This is about self-preservation and understanding that the key to this is hanging on long enough for there to be an opening. It reminds me of that kind of idea of, oh, we're lucky. And then you say, no, luck is really preparation plus recognizing an opportunity. She's saying, stay vigilant, stay healthy, stay prepared. So when the opportunity arises, we can get out of here and we can do something more to fix this situation. But you can't sit here and become you know, mangled because of punishments and because of things that they've done to you that beat you down emotionally, physically, everything else. Because when the opportunity comes, you won't be able to make your move. And I felt like Esther got it. And it was heartbreaking to watch her break, to see her cry and to realize June's not coming back for me. I need to stop thinking of it in those terms. I have to save myself. And if each of us individually save ourselves, then we can be a strong army together. But we can't just continuously look to the strength of someone else. We have to stay strong. And that message from Janine, one of the people who, as Esther would have treated as the weakest of all of them, I think it was like so impactful for her. Well, and Janine has an unfortunate but a realist perspective on the stuff that they have to go through. Yes. I, and I don't want to minimize that in any way. I just want to put it, but under the scope of the show and women in that position and the kind of mindset that they have to adopt in order to keep themselves going, I think it works. It may not be great, but it works. Yeah. She's just, I think that the idea is that, again, like we said, like you, you have to stay strong for when things get better right. and whether or not that is going to be an opportunity that comes from within or that's because somebody invades from the outside, whatever happens, 
when it's time to fight, you can't be emaciated because you haven't eaten. You can't be cut up in pieces because you've been punished. Like you have to be whole and you have to be hardy for when the day comes that we have to do something because the day will come. And that that bit of hope from Janine as blunt as it was coming across to Esther and as much as it was breaking Esther's heart to hear this, that like, wait a minute, we're going to have to wait for hope. Hope's not just, or, or like the, the opportunity is just not like tomorrow. Like we might have to actually persevere and hold the line here for a while. That was a lot. But man, I thought when they were walking down the hall and their little duo coming towards Lydia, and then when they're having that conversation with Lydia, and Janine is such a mother hen with her that Esther is repeating like the praise be and the blah, blah, blah. And Janine is mouthing the answers. Yeah. <laughs> She is such a sweetheart and she is right. She is that combination of realist, of understanding what needs to happen. She's like the scrappiest of all of them in so many ways because somehow she's actually retained a more tender side. She can be more harsh, but she still has that tender side to her, which is miraculous. It hasn't gotten the better of her, but it still exists. And and that is, she is a, a beautiful character development this this year this season i can't wait to see where she goes like we said this is going to be short and sweet coverage as we get ready for the finale paired with our coverage of the finale we have an exclusive interview with the show's creator bruce miller thank you guys so much for listening this is caroline this is paul thanks a lot thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.